Now let me invite you to grab your Bibles and turn them open to the very beginning, Genesis chapter 1. Last week we started a series together entitled Origins, and we're going to take the next several weeks to study Genesis chapter 1 and 2, which tells the story of creation. And we're going to look into Genesis chapter 3, which tells the story of the fall. And so this morning, or this evening, we're looking at Genesis chapter 1, and not long after I talked to some friends that we're going to be jumping into the book of Genesis together and, and tackling this theme of origins together, uh, I was asked, well, how long do you think it will take before you start dropping Chronicles of Narnia and the Lord of the Rings references in this particular series? And apparently at the time I didn't know, but now I do. It's pretty quick. I'm going to drop it tonight. Because uh, in the Chronicles of Narnia, C.S. Lewis um, does take some time in the first book in the chronology called The Magician's Nephew to describe how Aslan, the Christ figure, sings Narnia into existence. And there are actually two people there who are witnessing that take place. There are two characters from another world who are there and seeing all this develop. There's a little girl named Polly, and then there's an older gentleman named Uncle Andrew, and and they both hear the same song, and they see the same creation, but they respond to it in two entirely different ways. Listen to how it is described. Polly was finding the song that was the song of creation that Aslan was singing. More and more interesting because she thought she was beginning to see the connection between the music and the things that were happening. When a line of dark firs sprang up on a ridge about 100 yards away, she felt that they were connected with a series of deep, prolonged notes which the lion had sung a second before. And when he burst into a rapid series of lighter notes, she was not surprised to see primroses suddenly appearing in every direction. Thus, with an unspeakable thrill, she felt quite certain that all the things were coming, as she said, out of the lion's head. When you listened to his song, you heard the things he was making up. When you looked round you, you saw them. This was so exciting that she had no time to be afraid. Don't you love that? The song of creation dispelling fear from her heart. She had no time to be afraid. But Uncle Andrew's response in that moment was different. Listen to what, he, what goes on in, in his life. It says, as for Uncle Andrew, his teeth were chattering, but his knees were shaking so that he could not run away. One responded in a moment recognizing that she had no time to be afraid because she recognized the goodness of the Creator in that story. She recognized the wonder of Aslan. But the other guy, Uncle Andrew, had been rebelling against Aslan's presence. And he wasn't very excited about there being uh, this powerful lion doing this work of creation. And, and so his response in that moment was one of fear. He was still shaking. He wasn't at peace. He was resistant to what was taking place. Well, I share that with you because as we jump into Genesis chapter 1... One of the reasons we have the creation story laid out the way that it's laid out in this chapter is that this story is designed to dispel fear from our lives. When it came into being, it was addressing an ancient world that, where people's lives were characterized in large part by fear. They were afraid of the elements of the natural order. They were afraid of, of storms and seas and, and various things that were attached to the world that is and and then here comes this word from God through the writer who some many believe is Moses. Some say we are not entirely sure. I tend to believe it was Moses who received this word and is relaying it to the people of Israel. And, and this word that was intended to dispel fear, reminding, that this, reminding the people of Israel that the creator is the redeemer. 
that the creator is sovereign over his creation and he will set things right in his creation. And so that's sort of what we looked at last week, that the creator is the redeemer. And that's a heartwarming reality. That's the type of truth that can dispel fear from our hearts, rendering our hearts in a place where we have no time to be afraid. The creator of the cosmos is the redeemer of the cosmos as laid out in verses 1 through 3 that we explored last week. But one of the things I also love about Genesis chapter 1 is, is as it's designed to dispel fear, one of the ways that it does so is by depicting the story of creation in an artistic fashion. Scholars have sometimes discussed what is the genre of Genesis chapter 1. Is it a narrative? Is it purely narrative or is it purely poetry? And, and so you have these two camps who read Genesis chapter 1 through the lens of narrative or through the lens of poetry. But I want to I put before you tonight that I don't think this chapter fits squarely in either one of those categories. No, the story of creation that is laid out in Genesis chapter 1 is, I believe, a poetic narrative. There is narrative elements to it. There is a story being told to be sure. But there are also poetic elements in it. This is, there's symmetry in the laying out of this story. There's rhyme and rhythm to it. There, is, there are repetitions that come at strategic points saying this isn't purely narrative. It is a poetic narrative. It is a song that tells a story. It's a song telling the story of creation. And so you have this in chapter 1, but then that also helps us make sense of what's going on in Genesis chapter 2. Because in Genesis chapter 2, that's where the historical narrative of the book of Genesis will, will kickstart. And we know that because the book of Genesis is divided up into 10 sections. They're called Toledot sections, or these are the generations of sections. That's a heading that kind of kickstarts these 10 units in the book of Genesis. And so in Genesis chapter 2, you have the first one of those, and it goes into a more intimate, more detailed uh, description of how God formed the earth and how God filled the earth with creatures and human beings. And so you have chapter 1 and chapter 2 sitting side by side. One, I believe, to be squarely historical narrative. This one's kind of a poetic narrative leading into that moment. And it's not an uncommon way that the Bible kind of unfolds its stories. If you read the book of Exodus, you see the very same thing going on there. Exodus chapter 1 through 14 tells the historical narrative of how God redeemed his people, the Israelites, from Egyptian slavery. And then when you turn the corner into Exodus chapter 15, what happens? Song. A poetic narrative. It's called the Song of Moses that's, that Moses lays out, depicting what just went down in a poetic arrangement, in a rhythmic arrangement, a poetic narrative. That's what has going on, I think, in Genesis chapter 1. And that's very important for us to understand because it will help us make sense of some of the details as we journey through this chapter this week and, and come back to it again next week. Let me show you some of the artist's artistry of this creation account just by laying out kind of how it's arranged, the, the symmetrical style. There's a chart there in your notes, but just to lay it out for you here. If you remember back in verse 2, there was a description saying that the earth was without form and void, meaning it was shapeless and it was empty and darkness was over the face of the deep. And then once we get into verse 3, all the way down to the end of the chapter, God is essentially redeeming that situation. He is setting that chaos into order. And he does that, in a very, in, according to Genesis 1, in a very artistic, symmetrical kind of way. You have 
Six days of creation described in chapter one, each one focusing on another thing. But day one, days one, day two and day three deal with this issue of the earth being without form. So you have light coming in day one. You have sky coming in day two. You have land and vegetation coming in day three. But then when you look at day four, that's when the the void or the emptiness of God's creation is remedied because that's where he fills the world, the earth with animation, with with motion, with movement, with life. Day four, you have the the luminaries, the sun and the moon. Then day five, you have the birds and fish. Day six, you have animals and human beings uh, as being told that they should eat the plants that were created on day three for food. And so you see how day one corresponds with day four. Day two corresponds with day five. Day three corresponds with day six. There's a remarkable artistry and symmetry in the creation story found in Genesis chapter one. But then on top of the symmetry, there's also a a really interesting dynamic as it relates to numerical harmony. There was a Hebrew scholar by the name of Umberto Casuoto, he was a late professor, he's now passed, but he used to be a professor at Hebrew University. And he would take Genesis chapter 1 and he would read it in the original language and he would study it closely and he identified some patterns that were numerically related, speaking to its numerical harmony that speaks to its rich artistry. Listen to some of the, th- well, after he kind of studied that, this is what he laid out. He says that the work of the Creator in Genesis chapter 1 which is marked by absolute perfection and flawless systematic orderliness, is distributed over seven days, six days of labor, and a seventh day set aside for the enjoyment of the completed task. And he came to that conclusion after identifying a few really interesting aspects to how the chapter unfolds. I'll just give you a few of them. If you look at verse 1, you have three nouns found there. You have God, you have heavens, and you have earth. And each one of those three nouns appear again all throughout that chapter, but they appear in multiples of seven. You have God, which will show up in 35 times. Then you have earth and the heavens appearing 21 times throughout the chapter. Then you get into verse one, and in the original language, there are seven words. You get into verse two, there are 14 words. This compounding artistry, this poetic quality to Genesis chapter one. And then if you come all the way down to the last paragraph in the original documents, it's recorded in your English Bibles, chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. That's the last paragraph of the, of the song of creation or the story of creation. And listen to what he points out. He says, you know, the seventh paragraph, it contains three sentences. And each of those sentences has seven words. And each of those sentences contains in the middle of those seven words the phrase, the seventh day. There, are, there is a rich artistry to the creation account as told in Genesis chapter 1. It is a poetic narrative. And those, that's an important thing for us to understand because the qualities of a poetic narrative will help us understand what's going on in this chapter. It helps us make sense of the odd Kind of layout when you read in verse 1, the creation of light before there's ever a sun. And you're wondering, how can there be light without a sun? Well, I think, I think we'll discover some of the reasons behind that as we, as we study together tonight. But understanding that it's a poetic narrative also helps us uh, deal charitably with questions that arise as it, resu- as it relates to the history of creation. You know, there, there's conversation amongst Christians as to what the word day in chapter 1 points to. Some would say it's a literal 24-hour time span. 
But then those, some who do not kind of push back against that idea, they'll say, well, how can they be 24 hours uh, in the creation account when the sun and the moon weren't created until day four? And how does that happen in the sequence of things? And not realizing, perhaps, that, that the layout of Genesis chapter one is more theological and less scientific in that regard. There's a theological agenda to Genesis chapter one that is incredibly, incredibly important. And so you have questions about the age of the earth that comes up. You have questions about the role of evolution in the grand scheme of things. Can, can, does, does the, do those developments and discoveries in science, do they contradict the scripture's account of creation? And you have all these questions and conversations, and they are good conversations to have. But whether you are someone who studies this chapter and believes in a, that the creation came about in a literal 24-hour, 6 24-hour days, or whether you read the word day as representing an age or an epic or an ill-defined period of time, uh, there's charity that you can bestow one another because a reasonable explanation can be given for each of those interpretations. A reasonable interpretation can be given. And so as we engage these conversations and we, and we factor in things about scientific discoveries and geological developments and all those types of things, we want to engage that conversation with a semblance of humility. And we want to engage in those conversations giving charity to one another. Meaning you don't have to demonize a person who believes in a literal 24-hour uh, creation event that occurred over six days. And you don't have to demonize someone who has a different take on the word day in this passage because that day can in some ways speak to both positions. And so we want to hold this chapter charitably together and we want to think about faith and science charitably together and we want to encourage one another in those conversations, not demonize each other in those types of debates. Now, I have a position on how the word day should be understood, but I'm not going to give it to you tonight. It's not really the goal, because what we also got to keep in mind is that because this is a poetic narrative, this chapter is designed to warm your hearts with the reality of the creator and the goodness of his creation and the goodness of his promised redemption. This is where this chapter takes us. So it should lead us not debating one another. It should lead us into a position of worship and awe as we consider the wonder of the creator and how well he created all things and how well this chapter is crafted in the scriptures. And so we want to keep those thoughts in mind. And, and I would also encourage you that whatever your position is on the word day, in Genesis chapter 1, that that position is not a, whatever your position is, it's not a litmus test for orthodoxy. It is not a litmus test for orthodoxy to say, I must believe in a literal six days, 24 hours, that's when creation happened. It's not a litmus test for orthodoxy. The litmus test for orthodoxy is, did God create the heavens and the earth? If you answer that question, yes, you're orthodox. That's orthodox. God created the heavens and the earth. And we can discuss and we can talk and we can explore about the intersections between modern science and modern developments. But ultimately, when we come to the scriptures, we have to come to the scriptures on its own terms. And we need to first ask the questions that the first readers and the original writer was anticipating and addressing in his document. And I seriously doubt that Moses 
was thinking about modern-day questions related to evolution and related to the age of the earth in those regards as we understand them today. So there's a different agenda to this chapter that we want to hold together and that we want to sink in together. And so that's what we want to do as we move from the artistry of this, of this chapter into the application of the creation account. And I love this dynamic. We're just going to explore verses 3 through 13 uh, this evening, and we'll pick up the rest next week. But what you see happening here, the application of the creation account, what you see going on over the course of these three days is that in creation, God is preparing a home to host those that he loves. Essentially, that's what's going down in Genesis chapter 1. God is preparing a home for those he loves. And he does this by giving shape to the world. He does this by remedying the formlessness of verse 2. And he does it over the course of the first three days that are mentioned in Genesis chapter 1. And so he gives shape to the world by providing a home in order to provide, prepare a home for those that he loves. Consider day one. You got there day one told in verses three through five. It says, and God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God saw the light was good. The first act of creation, God speaking light, and there was light. And this is an interesting dynamic because this light is there, it is present, it is imminent prior to the mentioning of the sun and the moon in verse 14. So you want to know why does that happen? Why is it arranged that way? This is where I think Genesis chapter 1 as a poetic narrative serves as a polemic against some of the ancient worldviews of that time. Because they lived in a day and age where they viewed the sun, where many peoples viewed the sun as a type of God. That the sun was deified. And so what's going on in verse 3 is Moses saying, no, there's a light beyond the sun. That the sun is part of the created order and there is a God who transcends that luminary. There was light beyond the sun and that should warm the heart of those who come to know the God of Israel, those who come to know the creator as he's revealing himself in this way. So you have light beyond the sun and that light will ultimately shine forever. Did you know that the Bible ends in the same place that it begins? The Bible begins here in Genesis chapter 1 with a description of an untarnished creation and you have light without a sun. What's going to happen when God, when Jesus renews all things, when he ushers in the new heavens and the new earth? Well, he's bringing us into a moment, Revelation chapter 22, verse 3, where there will once again be light without a sun. Check it out, Revelation 22. And night will be no more. They will need no light or lamp or sun for the Lord will be their light. This helps us not lose sleep when scientists talk about the end of, of the sun and it burning out one day and, and all the things that are happening in the earth's climate right now. There's a sense in which we can still sleep well at night because there is a light beyond the sun that lasts forever. And so this account is designed to dispel fear so that we can rest in the world that is as we anticipate the world that is to come. So you have light there in verse 2 and, and then you move into day, uh, ver, sorry, day 1 and then you move into day 2 and you have the formation of the sky. 
Now, this is an interesting moment here on day two because I don't know if you noticed, Becky read this passage so well for us, but it's kind of a tongue twister. She keeps saying waters and waters and expanse and expanse, and it's kind of tricky to move, and she did it flawlessly. It was awesome. But, but this is a, 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 a passage that may be difficult to read out loud because it keeps using this repetitive language, and you're wondering what's going on. What does it mean for, for God to separate waters from the heavens from waters below and put an expanse between them? That's what we know as the sky or the atmosphere. Well, what's going on there? And so this reminds us, once again, when you approach the Bible, you need to approach the Bible on the Bible's terms. And one of the things about the scriptures you will find over and over and over again, especially in the Old Testament, is that a lot of passages, they describe things from the point of view of the human. In other words, they use phenomenological language. That's the technical term, meaning they depict things as they appear, as they are seen, or as they are viewed. And that's significant because sometimes you'll meet people who want to discredit the Bible because they look at some of the language the Bible uses to describe creation and to describe things in the world, and it seems it's not scientifically accurate or it's not literal, so to speak. You, you, you know this type of language and you know that just because you describe something as it appears to you or as you view it as opposed to how it actually is, that doesn't make you anti-science. That just makes you human. Every time you go on a hike, what are you going to do? You're going to watch a sunrise. You're going to watch the sunset. Does the sun technically rise? Does the sun technically set? No, that's phenomenological language. That is describing something as it is viewed, as, it, as you see it. This type of language is used all throughout the scriptures. And understanding that will help us show grace to those who may want to say, well, the Bible is anti-science. Look how it describes events in history or look how it des- describes events in nature. Well, the Bible describes events in nature the same way you and I describe events in nature in casual, normal, ordinary ways. So he depicts the, the creation of the sky as he viewed it. And what's interesting, you think back in antiquity, where did rain come from? Rain came from the sky. It fell to the earth. And so in their minds, they thought, well, there must be a huge expanse of water up there that the sky, this expanse, is separating us from. And rain comes through that. The gods or whoever God is just kind of drops the rain as needed according to the earth's needs. And so you have that description, the sky separating waters and And essentially, we don't want to get bent out of shape about that. He's describing it as it seems. He doesn't know the scientific process that you and I, perhaps some of you know, I'm not too familiar with, but how rain and water works and the circulation of from the earth back to the sky and down again. They didn't have language for that. And so he describes this event as it would appear to, to everyone back in that day. And so you have the formation of the sky, God creating making a way for land to later come up in the very next day. So day three, day three, beginning in verse 11. And God said, let the earth sprout vegetation. I'm sorry, verse nine. And let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place. That is the oceans and the seas. And God called the dry land earth and the waters that were gathered together. He called seas and God saw that it was good. And then in verses 11 through 13, what is he doing? He's saying, let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed, and fruit trees bearing fruit. It's, 
He's speaking about the vegetation of the earth. And so not only do you see in creation God preparing a home for those he loves by giving shape to it, sky, land, oceans, seas, light. You see him providing a home for those that he loves by giving sustenance to the world. He forms the earth in such a way that it can produce vegetation, this vegetation that will later be eaten and enjoyed by all living creatures. So you have this sustenance coming through there in day on day three. And it's a powerful picture of God's hospitality, isn't it? God preparing a home to host those that he loves. It's as though he's setting a table, expecting guests to come over. Expecting to feast with them, expecting to feed them, expecting to enjoy fellowship with living creatures, with animated beings, with, with people who can move and act and talk and think. He's preparing the table for that event, for that occurrence. It's a hospitable environment, setting the table for animated creatures to come in verses 14 on down to the end of the chapter. But here at the end of this particular section at the end of the third day he set the table the fruit trees are bearing fruit vegetation plants are yielding seeds things are growing things are developing it's it's a good moment and so you have this preparation of a home to host those God loves and and I want you to note the, the emphasis there. There's a repeated phrase in verses 11 through 13 about how each one of the seed, each one of the fruit trees and all the plants, they yielded seed and fruit according to its kind, which is a remarkable phrase that, God, that, that every aspect of creation does what it's designed to do. You know, apple seeds bear apple trees, right? Apple trees bear apple fruit. And so everything kind of does what it's designed to do. There's a woman by the name of Elizabeth Elliot whose husband, Jim Elliot, was martyred in the 1950s trying to take the gospel to an unreached people group in Ecuador. Well, after she lost her husband, she went on to have a, a very influential writing career, and she taught at some seminaries in the country and did these things. And, and it is said that when she used to teach her classes, she would walk in at the beginning of every year, she would look at her students in the eyes, and she would say, you know what? A clam glorifies God better than you do. And everybody would kind of scratch their heads wondering, why is she, why is she coming at us like that? <laughs> and she's like, a, a clam glorifies God better than you do. You want to know why? Because a clam is content being a clam. A, can, a clam is what it is, and it does what it is supposed to do. And he, she's getting after this idea that clams, yes, every aspect of creation as it relates to the first three days, kind of glorifies God by being exactly what God created it to be and doing exactly what God created it to do. But then you come into our humanity and you discover that we don't quite do that. And the reason why we're not there is because the story of the Bible keeps going. And you know that the creation accounts of chapters 1 and 2 comes to Genesis chapter 3 and what goes down there? Well, it's the fall. That's when sin enters the world and sin sullies and mars the imago Dei within us so that we are not content in being who God created us to be and doing the things that God created us to do. Instead of living lives of self-giving love, we are now living lives seeking to get and to gain. We're power grabbing and manipulating. We are trying to get as much as we can for ourselves rather than giving of ourselves in love to God and in love to one another. That's what the fall messed up. 
So a clam glorifies God better than we do because a clam does exactly what it's designed to do. But the good news of the story of creation in Genesis chapter 1 is that you hear notes of redemption kind of littered all throughout the chapter. Remember, the creator is the redeemer. So although things went south in Genesis chapter 3, he doesn't depend upon you and me to fix it and make it all right. No, he makes promises and he hints at things to come that he's going to set right, that he's going to make new, that this creation that he prepared to be a home to host those he loves, although sin has come in and disrupted things, that sin will not have the last word. So he promises over and over and over again throughout the storyline of the scriptures to make all things new. He promises a new creation, a new heavens, a new earth. He promises a new humanity where you and I are reformed and recreated to be who God has created us to be and to do what God has created us to do. Full throttle, full tilt without the sully of sin in our lives. And so I want us to think about that because it's very important that we consider that as God in creation prepared a home to host those that he loves, you and I know that now in the world that is, the world isn't very hospitable. That the fall has rendered the world hard to live in. Sin, sickness, Satan, suffering, death, all of that is a part of the world as it is right now. And so the question is, well, is there any hope? What needs to change? How do things need to unfold? As the fall has made this world unhospitable, that means we now need a new home. And then you hold that thought and you think about, you think about what happens when the Word who took on flesh and dwelt among us, you think about what went down when Jesus stepped into time and space. You think about some of the things he said and some of the things that he did. Take John chapter 14, for example. There's this moment where he sits down with his disciples and he's talking to them about how hard it is to be in a world that is inhospitable. How hard it is to be who you were created and redeemed to be in the world that is right now. And so he's writing to them. They're tempted to live in fear and to shrink back from following him because he's saying, look, I'm about to leave. I'm going to go to the cross. I'm going to come back and then I'm going to go back to my father. But but don't sweat it. I'm going to send my my spirit to you and he's going to help you. He's going to guide you who's going to do things for you and but listen to the promise he makes in John chapter 14 he tells these troubled disciples he says look let not your hearts be troubled you have no time to be afraid believe in God believe also in me in my father's house are many rooms if it were not so would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself that where I am, you may be also. You see, in creation, God prepared a home to host those that he loves. In redemption, he's doing the exact same thing. In redemption, he promises a new home to host those he loves. And so you consider this promise of, of a new home, a new creation And you consider that and then you come back to Genesis chapter 1 and you begin to hear notes of redemption kind of playing in the background of the song of creation as as Jesus in the gospel promises in now to give shape to our lives. As we kind of grip or gripped by the promise of a new home, then that reality begins to give shape to our lives. The, The gospel, Jesus, begins to make all things new within us now. You see this a few ways hinted at in Genesis chapter 1. 
You see it in verse 3 when the first thing that God said was he, he said, let there be light. And boom, there was light. And then you hold that in your mind. That, that was an act of creation. Well, what about redemption? Well, consider 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 6. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. In redemption, God gives shape to our lives. He gives direction. He gives light. He shines the light of the gospel so that we might see God's glory in the face of Jesus. That is, he's giving shape to our lives by providing direction to our lives. He's directing us to Jesus. He's saying, you want to know how to journey through a fallen world? You want to know how to live in an inhospitable environment? Follow Jesus. Look at the glory of God that is shining in the face of Jesus. Turn to him. That's where you belong. He is the one you were created for. He's the one you are redeemed by. So you get direction in the gospel. You get direction in redemption. You sink into Christ. And you no longer push to and fro in a world that is full of chaos a world that is filled with formlessness and a world where lies are, are void and lacking Jesus, lacking God, lacking a divine satisfaction. You're, you're not subjected to that. You now have direction. You know where life is found. It's found in Christ. It's found in Jesus. He's who we step into. But not only does he give shape to our lives by providing direction, he gives shape to our lives by providing distinction. I don't know if you picked up on this as we read through the, those passages in Genesis chapter 1, but understand there's distinction being made here in the creation account, and it is cued into, it is signaled by the repetition of this word separates. Look at verse 4, for example. And God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. He was drawing a distinction between light and darkness. He does the same thing in verse 7. He does it again in verse 14 and verse 18. There is distinction in redemption. There is separation in redemption. And the reason why that is significant, again, remember, who were the first readers of this chapter? The first readers were the people of Israel that had just been brought out of Egyptian slavery. They were being brought into the promised land and they've received what? They've received God's word. They've received the Ten Commandments and the law of Moses. And that law was designed to set them apart. That law was designed to render them distinct in the world that is. So that Israel, get this, could be a light to the nations. By letting their lives be shaped by God's word, their light would shine bright so that all the surrounding nations would come to know the creator. So that all the surrounding nations would come to know that God who created the universe is the one who will redeem the universe. Israel was to be a light to the nations by living out their distinctness, by living out their holiness, by worshiping the creator above any aspect of the created order. That's who Israel was supposed to be. But perhaps you're familiar with the story of Israel that things didn't go very well for them. They, their light didn't shine very bright. Their lives weren't formed by the written word very well. They didn't do what God told them to do very well. They were unfaithful. They proved to be broken, and so their light didn't shine. But then what goes on? Did God give up? Did God pull back? No, God proceeded with his plan of redemption so that Jesus would step onto the scene. And in John chapter 8, verse 12, what would he say of himself? John chapter 8, verse 12, he would declare to all of his listeners, I am the light of the world. I've come to do what Israel failed to do. I've come to show you 
who God is and to show you what God is like. I've come to give, bring distinction into your life so that you might be in a redeemed relationship with your creator. I am the light of the world. So what Israel failed to be, Jesus succeeded. That's one of the many reasons we call him Savior. That's one of the many reasons we see the glory of God in the glory of God in his face. He is light. And when we follow him, when we step into relationship with him, that brings distinctness, that brings holiness, that brings separation, that brings a rhythm of life that is different than the rhythm of life you carried out apart from Christ. It is a rhythm of life live now where you're letting your light shine, so to speak. The presence of Jesus is what makes you distinct. The presence of Christ in you and for you that gives you a different perspective that gives you a different outlook, that changes how you relate to people, that changes how you relate to creation. It changes how you relate to anyone and everyone. So we want to let our light shine, living out our distinction. That's how, in redemption, God gives shape to our lives. Direction, come to Jesus. Distinction, live with Jesus. But then there's a third aspect to it. You see it echoed in Genesis chapter 1. And it's echoed in that phrase, if you noticed it, Time and time again, every time God created something and he separated it, he then declared it what? He said, this is good. So there's delight in creation. And there is delight in redemption as well. If you think God delighted in creation, I assure you, God delights in the new creation he's making you to be. The new creation he promises to bring into reality that will dispel all sin, that will dispel all darkness, that will dispel all sickness, that will dispel all death, that will dispel everything that hinders our enjoyment of God and of one another now. This new heavens and the new earth is going to dispel it all. And so just as God spoke out over the created order, declaring it good in Genesis chapter 1, when he sees you in Christ, he declares you good. He declares you valued. He declares you treasured. He declares you holy. He declares you righteous. He declares you pure. He declares you blameless. That is who you are in Christ. This is one of the reasons why we at the church want to study the scriptures in a way that leads us to Jesus, not necessarily leading us to any other rule or leading us to any other principle or leading us to any other lifestyle. We want to study the scriptures in a way that leads us to Jesus because he is the light of the world. He is the hope of the world. It is in relationship with him where our lives are changed and they become distinct. And so the first move of our study of scripture is never to us. We don't study the Bible and say, okay, how can I learn to live in this world? How can I manage my finances? How can I have a healthy marriage? How can I raise my kids wisely? Our first move in our Bible study should never be, how can I live in the world that is? No, your first move in every Bible study should be, how can I study this and read this, explore this so that I learn to live in Christ? How can I see this passage as pulling me deeper and deeper into my communion with Christ? And when you find yourself in Christ, then you're free to engage the world that is without fear. But if you're outside of Christ, you have no anchor, you have no savior, you have no one who can carry you through the world that is en route to the world that is to come. I assure you that if you're not in Christ, you're not strong enough to handle this world. You cannot overcome your sin. You cannot overcome the spiritual opposition that wages war against your life. You cannot overcome, most notably, death. 
You can't do it. So we want to read the scriptures. How do I deal with life as it is? Well, I run to Jesus. I get into Jesus. I find God's favor there. I find God's blessing there. I find God's delight there. Just as the Father would speak out over Jesus, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. That word of delight. He says the same thing over each and every one of us who are in Christ. This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. This is my beloved daughter with whom I am well pleased. You are free to be who I created and redeemed you to be. You can do some of the things I created and redeemed you to do now. That's the beauty of our redemption as we live in anticipation of this new home that Jesus will one day bring us into. But then there's one other dynamic that I want to kind of end on, and that's this dynamic. You noticed at the end of day three, God was giving sustenance to the world. Well, in redemption, not only does God give shape to our lives, but he also gives sustenance to our souls. There's a reason why, again, in John chapter 6, Jesus would step up and he would tell everyone who's listening, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will not hunger, will not thirst. That's who Jesus is. He gives sustenance to our souls. And I can't tell you how much that is needed when you find your life breaking down in the world that is. Back in 2011, my friend Jonathan Bean was diagnosed with brain cancer. There was a tumor that popped up in his head. He was serving at the time and continued to serve for a few years after that as the pastor of global disciple making at a church in Birmingham, and Birmingham, Alabama. And he was advocating for engaging the nations with the gospel. He loved to tell people about Jesus. He loved to see churches planted all over the world, and he gave his life to that activity. But then in 2011, when he was diagnosed with this condition that threatened to slow him down, he started undergoing treatments and and going through all that was needed to deal with that tumor. And eventually he had some positive developments. The tumor began to shrink and he thought everything was going into remission. And so he continued serving. He continued going to the nations. He continued talking about Jesus. And this was the story as things were positively unfolding until about two months ago he woke up and his body just wouldn't do the things that he thought he could do. He couldn't move the way that he moved the day before. His motor skills were deteriorating and They rushed him into the doctor to get a checkup, not sure exactly what it was. And it turned out that the tumor had come back and his situation started to deteriorate very, very quickly. After a while of of just doing whatever he could to find a course of action, the doctors decided or said there's really nothing they could do. And he went into hospice care and he went home. And he spent the past several weeks at home in his bed, unable to move. Of course, he would do all that he could to be, with his, be for his three little kids as he's only 43 years of age. and He would be pushed out in a wheelchair to watch them play soccer. He would talk with them daily as much as he could, and he would eat sustenance. He would eat food that people would bring to him. But over time, his body couldn't handle the sustenance of this earth. It couldn't do for him what it, was intent, what it had done for him long ago. He He started drinking smoothies, and then it moved to juices, and then it moved to just water. And before long, the sustenance of this world began to fail him, but all the while, the sustenance of Jesus was sustaining and strengthening him. 
as his outward body was wasting away, his inner nature was being renewed day by day because every day men and women would come and see him. Men and women would talk to him about Jesus and, and Christ and what does it mean to know Christ and to be with Christ. He would talk about the, the home that he was anticipating stepping into in the new heavens and the new earth. And, and they would have these moments of incredibly gospel-saturated conversations. And, and that was his life for a while. And then... He went to bed Friday night, woke up yesterday morning, and just as Jonathan can, he gathered a, pe- there were a group of people gathered around his bedside, and they began to sing songs together. And Jonathan was a guy who loved the nation, so it was a diverse swath of his faith family, so people were singing in different directions, different languages, and they were singing the song, Because He Lives. And pretty soon, as they worked through that song, they got to this stanza, And then one day I'll cross the river. I'll fight life's final war with pain. And then as death gives way to victory, I'll see the lights of glory and I'll know he lives. Moments after ending that song, Jonathan closed his eyes never to open them up again in this world. He departed the world that is. And he stepped into the presence of Christ where he will dwell for all eternity. And there's coming a day when that Christ, when that Jesus returns and he ushers in the new heavens and the new earth. And Jonathan Bean is going to rise up in that new world. And he's going to be a part of that recreated order. He's going to enjoy things as in better ways than he ever enjoyed them in this life. Because in that moment, Jonathan is going to see a diverse swath of humanity rallying around the throne of Jesus, singing his praises, honoring the creator, honoring the redeemer. He's going to partake in that just as we are. We're going to partake in that in that moment. And so we want to live towards that reality. We want to let that reality, that promise give shape to us now, provide sustenance to our souls so that whenever all hell breaks loose in your life in this world, you do not. When your outer nature begins to waste away, your inner nature can be renewed day by day because the sustenance of Christ is enough. The sustenance of Christ is all we need ultimately to journey through the world that is en route to the world that is to come. And it is in light of these realities, when we begin to live in light of them, we'll discover we don't really have time to be afraid. We don't have time to be afraid in a fallen world. Because in redemption, God promises a new home for those that he loves. In redemption, he gives shape to our lives. And in redemption, he gives sustenance to our souls. And so we want to press into that together. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, would you give us grace now as we consider these truths? Would you impress them deeply, embed them deeply within our hearts? Would you show us what it means to live in light of these? Would you minister to us now as we all need it, for we are all experiencing the frustrations of life in an inhospitable world, and we need your grace in this time, in this space. We need your grace. So would you come and minister to us? Would you please make yourself known to us in progressive ways so that we might 
live in light of the redemption you've provided. God, we love you and we thank you and we pray for all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.